rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. We're going to start back into Ecclesiastes this morning and we're going to begin looking at chapter 5 and we're only going to look at the first couple of verses this morning. The section runs chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. But I want to take each section as it comes and especially when it comes to the introduction of these verses. But I sort of have to set the stage for us a little bit because we've been out of Ecclesiastes for a while. But we've seen how Solomon's thoughts and observations have been on a horizontal level for the most part, looking at everything under the sun, trying to make sense of this life solely by looking at things under the sun, trying to find an answer for life and purpose under the sun. And we find that as he walks through this book, he takes on different perspectives that those in the world might take on to try to make sense of life and purpose and meaning here. And it's interesting as I started thinking about this, most of these observations that he makes, the remedies are not found under the sun, but above the sun. And that is where he's going to take us in chapter 5. And it's interesting because I was watching this interview, and we rejoice in the fact that we have religious freedom here in America. But also with our religious freedom provides religious freedom for others as well. Not just for us as Christians. And one of the things I was looking into and, and watching a documentary on was this new movement that's happening. It's in Colorado, it's in New Mexico, and then in old Mexico, and originally that's probably where it started and made its way into the states. But it's interesting because they have their priests and priestesses, and what they do in this particular religion, this belief, is that they have found these frogs that emit this venom, Right? against predators. It's their defense mechanism. Well, they found a way that they can excrete this venom from the frogs and then they can crystallize it. And then they smoke it. And this is what they do as a part of their worship. They smoke the venom from this frog. Now, you have to have someone who administers this because it's very lethal. So if you take too much, you will immediately die upon consuming it. They also have to have two or three other members who are present, sometimes four, depending on, but they have other members who are present because as they take in this venom into their system, they go into extreme convulsions. And if left to themselves, would end up killing themselves, likely. So what they do is they take them and they pin them down on the ground as they go into these convulsions and someone will hold their head so they don't beat their head upon the ground. But this is a moment in which they, quote-unquote, experience death. And they say, those who've gone through this, they actually feel like they're dying, like the breath is going out for them, their heart's going to stop, they feel like they're going to die, and then all of a sudden there is this euphoric feeling that comes over them, and they go completely limp. This they call the resurrection. In other words, they are their own savior. They go through this experience themselves. They pass from death into life. So as this 
individual who was doing documentary was interviewing this priestess who was in Colorado administering this stuff, asked her, so does this enable you to experience reality better? And she says, oh yes, absolutely. And he says, does this bring you closer to God? She said, no, I am God. These are the attempts of man to try and make sense of life. This is the absurdity to which he is willing to go to try and find meaning, purpose, and reality. To be in touch with reality. Solomon takes us on this journey and he deals with these kinds of concepts as he walks through this book, but he is going to bring us to another level in chapter 5. But he is focused on the bitter, the barren, born things of life through disillusioned eyes, but also through enlightened eyes because he's writing under the power of the Holy Spirit and he knows and sees and understands things for what they are. But at moments he gives us these breaks in his argument of looking at things under the sun and he takes us to life above the sun and he gives us such amazing vertical perspective. And that is what he does here in chapter 5 is he is going to take us to a higher level as he talks about the fact that you must be careful, verse 2 of chapter 5, how you bring up a matter in the presence of God for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, that there is a vast difference between God and you. <laughs> so understand who it is that you approach and address. So what he's going to do for us in chapter 5 is he's going to scrape the veneer off of this empty religion he is going to address and he's going to take us back to the bedrock of a relationship with the true and living God. And in chapter 4 we saw that he started taking us through a series of observations and really it started at the end of chapter 3. But he moves us through these observations into chapter 4 on the need for companionship, but the right kind of companionship. And the reader might ask the question then, isn't God the answer to this? And the answer is absolutely yes, but you must be careful how you approach him. And this is where he brings us to in chapter 5. We need God. He is the answer to life and purpose and meaning and so on. He is the key to what satisfies and to what unifies. But you need to understand, you must be careful how you approach it. So the title of this message comes from this thought then in chapter 5. It is approaching God with care. And like I say, he begins actually in chapter 4 and he leads us into this argument in chapter 5. And in reality, chapter 5, verse 1 in your English translations is actually chapter 4, verse 17 in the Hebrew text. But I'm going to go by the English so you don't get thrown off, right? But just understand that. And he is going to address the issue of worship. And worship is one of the highest ministries that we as a church have. We understand that everything that we do is an act of worship. It's interesting, as I taught classes in seminary overseas in Russia, and one of the classes I taught was on biblical ministry, and it was not just merely on pastoral ministry, but life of the church as a whole, and what it was supposed to look like, and what we were supposed to do. And what was interesting as I took the students through a journey through the New Testament was to show them that every aspect of our life is an act of worship. So in reality, Sunday is a culmination of a week long of us worshiping God with the things that we say and do. Everything from using our gifts, everything to giving financially, everything that we do is an act of worship to God. And so this is just merely a culmination of all of that. And Romans chapter 12 bears that out very clearly if you want to go there. But we need to understand that this is serious business. 
And when we come to the issue of worship, we must come with hearts that are devoted and wills that are yielded to God. Because it's interesting to me the first thing that Solomon is going to deal with, Koheleth, as he addresses himself in this book, is he's going to talk about worship, but he doesn't talk about singing at all. <laughs> Nor does he talk about music. Nor does he talk about us praying to God. That comes next when he tells us to be careful what we do and say when we come before the Lord. What he starts with first is very interesting. So Solomon in his observations, he takes us from chapter four or chapter three at the end, into four and into five. He goes from the courtroom to the marketplace to the highways and byways to the political realm, that is the palace, and now to the temple. And remember that he is the one who oversaw the building of this magnificent structure. David wanted to build a house for God. God said, no, 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 you shed way too much blood. You can't do this, but your son will do this for me. So Solomon is the one who built this temple. He oversaw it. Therefore, he also oversaw the worship that took place. These are his observations that he makes as he watches the worshipers as they come and go and they praise God and they pray to God and they sacrifice and they make all of their vows. And yet he noticed that as he watched all of them, not all of them are sincere. So here is the caution for us. How do we approach God in worship? Are we careful when we come before Him as we gather together as His people to exalt and glorify the name of God? Are we mindful of the one that we are talking to? Are we mindful of the one that we are coming before? Are we mindful of the one in whom we are in the presence of? The other thing that he notes, those who leave the sacred precincts, he notices that they're in worse spiritual condition when they entered them. And they're unaware of their spiritual dullness. Chapter 5, verse 1, for they do not know they are doing evil. They're so spiritually dull, they don't even know what they're doing is wrong. So this is the movement then, and this is how Solomon starts us off. And we will begin to look at the first seven verses, but primarily this morning we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. And the overriding thought is this. As you go to the house of God, how should we approach Him in worship? And I just leave this for you to ponder. And, and I have thought about this often when it comes to the issue of worship. Worship is about reflecting the worth and value of God. This is where our English word worship comes from. Worth-ship. He is worthy of our worship. But what we focus on when we focus on God is we focus on the value of God, the worth of God. But this is what I find very interesting about worship, though, in the church, is that so often it is supposed to be objective, but it becomes so subjective. Like when I was pastoring in Russia, I had to deal with churches that split over worship. Why? Because they were so self-focused when it came to worship. It was all about the style of music. It was all about what my preference is over your preference. And in one church, it was about the older generation opposed to the younger generation. The younger generation wanted hip music, so more of their friends would come from university and then have a chance to hear the gospel. And the older folks, they were used to the hymns, and everyone had their own hymn book. And this is what they sang for years, all through the persecution. Why would we give up that now? 
What I find interesting with Scripture is the fact that what God preserves for us in the Psalms is not the music. Not saying that we don't, shouldn't have music or that is irrelevant, but He saved the words for us. The things that we sing about, the things that we reflect on, the nature and being of God. But it's amazing how we take something that is supposed to be so focused on God and we make it so about us. Yes, we have worth in the eyes of God. <laughs> but when it comes down to it, it's about God and His worth and His value. So in reality, God is praised by being prized above everything else. This is a truth that we find in the Old Testament, New Testament. Wherever we go, we will find this same reality that God is praised when He is being prized above all else. This is why 1 John, he ends chapter 5, verse 21. Keep away from anything that will take God's place in your heart. Not just those idols that you set up in these little statuettes in your homes, but those idols that you have in your heart. Those things that in and of themselves might be even good, but you make them ultimate. And now they've displaced God in your heart. Solomon is going to challenge us in regards to this. Worship is about God. And if we understand about the worth of God and the value of God and prizing God above all things else, then we will draw near to Him with devoted hearts and yielded wills. Speak, Lord, for Your servant is listening. May it be done to me as You have said if I borrow the words of Mary. It's the one thing that's always staggered me about her. Such an example of obedience to God. And likely nothing but a teenager. That's maturity. So as worshipers, then, we are to be characterized by acceptance of God and not by making demands on God. But this oftentimes is what we think of when we come to worship or in our own time with God as we worship Him, we come asking rather than receiving. We come looking for something from Him rather than accepting the Word of God and listening to Him speak to us from His Word. We are to be characterized by humility, recognizing God's majesty and His right over our lives. Therefore, he makes the point of the fact that God is in heaven, we are on earth, and the first thing we must do when we come to the house of God is that we must draw near to listen. Why? Because God's speaking. Two things that fall under this section as we approach the house of God. First is the approaching the presence of God, verses 1 through 3, and then apprehending the promises of God, 4 through 7. There are a number of commands that are given here, warnings about worship. And I find it interesting that in Ecclesiastes, this is the one time we find an overabundance of commands. This is what you do, or this is what you need to be careful of. These are warnings that you need to take in. Up until now, we haven't received a whole lot of commands on what we're supposed to do, although things that we are supposed to understand and believe and react to in our life, we get that. But now we have direct commands given to us by Solomon. These are things you must do. And the first is this, guard your steps. Now, I want to begin with the place of worship. 
Because in 5.1, in the NAS and whatever translation you have, most of them will have the house of God. There's a few that, that render it the temple of God, and that's an interpretation. It's an accurate one, but it's not a literal translation from the original into English. It is the house of God. What I find interesting about this reference to the house of God, this is used in the Old Testament of any place of worship. Any place of worship in which we worship the one true God. I'll give you an example. One time we have it early on in Genesis chapter 28, verse 17. This is when Jacob, right, he's in Bethel and he falls asleep and he has that dream and he sees the ladder going up to heaven. And this is what he says in chapter 28, verse 17. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate to heaven. This reference in this passage to ladder can also be translated stairway. Little thought, stairway to heaven, but this is what he sees. And this is how he responds. And then it says in the end of that chapter that he sets this stone up as a pillar, as a memento of, and he says, this will be the house of God. So that is where we're introduced to this thought of the house of God. It is any place where God, the one true God, is worshipped. And so when they built the tabernacle, when they did the temple, this was always referenced to as the house of God. It's interesting because the, the church I pastored in Russia, Common Sky, is the street. The church, we, they would call it Domelitvi. It's the house of prayer. And I really liked that because literally it was a house. It was an old log cabin is what we met in for church. But that is what they referred to as a place of worship. It was the Domelitvi, is the house of prayer. In the early church, they met in homes. And so wherever they met, whoever's home they gathered in, they would refer to it as the Tan Kurion, the Lord's. It's his house. Which is interesting because that's where we get our English word church from. It's not from the Greek word ekklesia, it's from the word kuriakon, the Lord's. So all the way through the New Testament, if we have reference to the house of God, it's used in any place in which the one true God is worshipped. A location, or a tabernacle, or a temple. But what's interesting to me is the preparation that he talks about now as we approach this. And notice how he starts, chapter 5, verse 1, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Literally it is, guard your feet as you go. The terminology that's used here is reflective of one's lifestyle. In other words, as you live your life approaching, and so some translations trying to be as literal as possible, they refer to prudently walk, they render this, prudently walk as you go to the house of God. In other words, it's talking about preparation before you come to worship. The focus is being on the fact that we need to prepare ourselves for worship by being obedient to God. And if you think about this, going back to Proverbs, Proverbs written by Solomon, this kind of terminology is laid out of Proverbs, and we see him using it here. He's also going to use terminology that's likened to Deuteronomy, and we'll see that in a moment. In other words, you don't just flippantly come and gather together as God's people for worship. You must prepare yourself for worshiping God. And part of that is walking in obedience to His Word. And here's the interesting thing. The more that we walk in obedience to the Word of God, the more we want to hear the Word of God and respond to it. So what better way to prepare to come and draw near and listen to Him than to walk in obedience to the words we've already been given. 
It's interesting how our thirst and hunger and desire for the Word of God is so connected with our obedience. The more that we're obedient, the more that we walk in the light, the more that we want to be in the light. The more that we stay out of the Word, the more we, less we listen to the Word of God, the, the more disobedient that we are in our life, the less we want to hear from God. Why? Because we know we're in sin. So Solomon's exhortation, then and now, we need to understand that we are not to take worship lightly when it comes to gathering together as the saints, as the people of God. And therefore, the saints must enter the temple with reverence. Barton, he paraphrases these verses as this. He says, Do not run to the place of worship thoughtlessly or because it is the fashion to go frequently, but consider the nature of the place and thy purpose in going. Why do we gather together? What is it that we are doing? Who is it that we are worshiping? Who is it that we are to glorify and exalt? Christ himself said this in John 23, or John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, that we ought not to approach worship lightly, but we must intentionally prepare ourselves, whether in heart, head, or life, because he says we are to worship. We must worship in spirit and in truth. Sometimes we roll in on Sunday. It's the thing that we do. We do it every Sunday. This is where we go. This is what we gather together to do. And this is what we do, but we make no preparation for it at all. And we sort of come in and we sing the words and we utter these things out of our mouth. And Solomon says, it's just lip service if you have no idea what you're saying. Or if you come into this not aware of God's presence at all. And not aware of who He is at all. It's just words. And it's so easy for us, isn't it? As Isaiah says, it's so easy for us to draw near with him in our, with our words and be so far from him in our hearts. So obedience to the word of God in private life prepares us for the participation in public worship. I used to have a professor in college and used to say this, I spend every Saturday night I spend the night getting my heart ready for worship the next morning. But as I've studied scripture, the more I realize I am preparing for the next Sunday, Monday. <laughs> and in my own life, this is what I do. If you ask any of my kids, what, is, what does your dad do when he leaves church in the morning? I go home and I sit and I spend time in the Word, preparing myself for the next Sunday. Because I know that I need this walking into the week. The next exhortation comes drawing near to listen. As the New Living Translation renders it, and it's kind of harsh, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. <laughs> and this is the, the, the refrain that keeps coming over and over again. We find it in verse 2, we find it in verse 3, we find it again in verse 7. If you notice with me, chapter 5, verse 7, For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, vanity is our word again, rather fear God. It's a whole lot of talking and not a lot of listening. Or to borrow the words from John Wayne and one of my favorite westerns by him, Big Jake, he says they are short on ear and long on mouth. So busy talking, not listening. <laughs> so what we do with our kids, right? Stop, focus, eye contact, hear what I'm saying with intent on obeying that. Don't talk, right? We do this, we talk, but we're not listening. 
And then we come back and go, could you repeat that one more time? God's like, how many times I got to tell you? So the exhortation is drawn near and listen well because God is the one who is communicating and it calls for then a spirit of attentive, submissive listening. And the reference to listen here, as he gives us this exhortation in 5.1, draw near to listen, this presupposes a spoken word. The worshiper comes to hear God's word. This is what we're intent on. It's true in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. When they gathered together in the synagogue, this is what they gathered together for. They would unroll the scroll, they would read from scripture, and then there would be a sermon, an explanation, expounding upon the text, and then that was their worship. We find the same thing in the New Testament. 1 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 13, this is Paul's instruction to Timothy. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. The expounding upon what you read. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. A part of God's worship of His people is the fact that He is going to speak to us. I'm just merely a mouthpiece. This is why how we handle the scriptures is vitally important. This is why we stick to the text. This is why we draw the meaning out from the text, not impose a meaning or an understanding onto it. We don't impose our theology on it. We come and let it inform us what our theology is. Technically, we call that exegesis, not eisegesis. We draw the meaning out, not put a meaning or an understanding into it. This is why we labor over it. Because God speaks in His Word. We're just a mouth. And if somehow I'm not speaking from the text, then you all come and tell me, that's not right, I don't see it there. As Kelly puts it, and rightly so, he says, to listen is to obey, and that is always the understanding in the Old Testament. When the reference to listening to the Word of God comes with the understanding of obedience to what you hear, he goes on to say, to state the matter thus is to specify who is to have authority over man's life. It is to be God and God alone. Every church should be driven by the Word of God in every aspect of its life. Sole rule of faith and practice. It tells us what to believe and how to behave. The only authority that anyone has, any leadership or anyone in the church has, any of us has, the only authority that we have is this. Everything else, opinion. You can give it, but I don't have to live by it. I can give you mine, and you can take it or leave it. But His word matters. And when we hear, then we come forward willing to obey what we hear. Thus it means then that it is only, only through submission to Him as sovereign Lord in one's life can we walk thusly in the word of God. Come understanding that he has every right to us and what he tells us is what we must do. Life is that simple. God commands, we do. <laughs> Easy, right? Draw near to listen echoes the words of Deuteronomy and I find it very interesting because we have this over and over in Deuteronomy. God speaks and then the committed are the ones who are supposed to be obedient to the commands of God. And just as for your own edification, some of the key words in the book of Deuteronomy, heart, listen, obey, observe, keep, all of these, listen, obey, observe, keep, are all related to each other. And then we have commands 127 times in 98 verses. 
So no wonder Solomon picks up on terminology from Deuteronomy and uses that here when he talks about drawing near and listening to God. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus faced Satan in his temptation, what book did he quote from? Deuteronomy. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The contrast then, 5.1, notice with me, there is a contrast here, rather than the sacrifice of fools. Now this reference to the sacrifice of fools can talk about an unqualified sacrificial animal, or it can talk about an incorrect heart attitude when one comes to worship. Contextually, if we look at what Solomon says here, he is talking about someone who is just merely going through the motions as they offer up a sacrifice, while they spew out this torrent of words, empty words, and not possessing any awareness of God at all. Just going through the motions. You ever feel like that in your Christian life? You're just going through the motions? You do it because that's what you're supposed to do? I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I, I, everything was the church. We were at the church all the time. It seemed like every night of the week there was something going on at church. We were always there. It's what we did. <laughs> and I would always say to my dad, oh, we have to go to church, Dad? He says, no, you get to go to church. And it was a have to, right, for a while in my life, till all of a sudden I really realized I get to. It's a privilege to worship God. It's a privilege to gather together as His people, to hear Him speak from His Word, and to utter praises to the greatness of who He is. Matthew warns against this wordy worship in 6, 7 and following, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. <laughs> I can think of some brothers when I was growing up in church. Man, could they pray. Lord, <laughs> we ask you today. It's like, oh man. And we'd all shudder as kids, right? When, when they would ask, you know, <laughs> so-and-so to get up and pray. We're like, oh, here we go, man. We're going to have a sermon all over again before we get out of here, right? It's not how much you say. It's what you say that matters. Right? It's not the quantity. It's the quality. If this is as far as this body goes, I'm happy with that. Because there are quality believers here. <laughs> and my only prayer is that more come. It's never about the number, but for us as Americans, this is how we weigh everything. Everything's about the number. How many do you have, right? How many this, how many that? We do this by quantity rather than by quality. Kelly says this, the reference is to an unruly, noisy, hasty, self-centered irreverence that refuses to submit to God's word. This is borne out in the fact that the word fool is used three times, kessil, in this passage. And it means one who is dull and obstinate. In other words, it's focusing on a spiritual problem, not a mental problem. In other words, you can be as intelligent as Einstein and still be a kessil, a fool. It manifests then a lack of reverence for the truth, for God's truth, and for God himself then. Because God and his word always go hand in hand. 
In other words, you have those who are coming into worship and they're just going through the motions and their heart is not in it and they have no desire to hear from God or listen to God and they are obstinate when they come. And we do this, we dig ourselves a deeper hole of sinfulness when we come and we sort of turn ourselves off to the word of God, right? We're like the Old, Old Testament describes, we're stiff-necked. Yeah, don't tell me anything. I was a stiff-necked child. <laughs> The more you lectured and told me what was right, the more I got, I'm not budging. You tell me to sit down, I'm going to stand up. You tell me to stand up, and I'm going to sit down. So God said, all right, we're going to loosen up that neck a little bit. <laughs> so now I'm walking with a cane. Five one the final clause, they do not know that they are doing evil. Solomon says they're so dull spiritually in their understanding, they actually think that they're doing something good and acceptable. I really don't want to be in this category. To think that I'm doing something good and acceptable when really God looks at it and says it's completely worthless through and through. We go through the actions, but if the heart isn't in it, the actions, what do they mean? Right? When Jesus confronts the religious leaders, you give your tithe, you do all of this stuff, right? You go through the actions, but inwardly, you're forgetting the love and justice of God. Get your heart right while continuing to do the things you're supposed to do. Final thoughts then on this is that worship is one of the primary joys and responsibilities that we have as a church. Everything that we do is about worshiping God. Evangelism, everything. It's all about worshiping God. But we also know that we can approach it with a casual attitude. And we judge its value in our life by how well it's served us. You know what I love about this body? One of the many things I love about this body is that folks come to serve. That's not typical. It's not typical. True worship is God-focused. It's not subjective, it is objective. And worship in the Bible is due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their creator. And as God grants to us and provides for us and gives us good gifts, as Solomon talks about in all of these things, the, the knowledge that he reveals about himself, his greatness and his graciousness, all of these things we must return in kind by praising and adoring him for these things. My prayer is, found, is that we would be found to be worthy worshipers of God. That we would truly glorify Him in all that we say and do. Not merely in the actions that we go through, but our heart attitude as we do them. May they be pleasing to our God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're so thankful for the great privilege it is for us to be called your people. To be saints in Christ, sanctified and set apart for your work and worship. Father, we pray that you are glorified by our time here this morning and thoughts and meditations of our heart might be pleasing aroma to you. I'm so thankful, Father, for this body of believers and those that you have so gifted with talents and spiritual gifts and so thankful, Father, for how they come to serve and to use to offer up themselves as a sacrifice to you, holy and acceptable. We're so thankful for your word and the preservation of it and the fact that we can know your will for our life. It's such a gift. 
May we take full and complete advantage of that gift in every moment of our life. May we spend time reading your word. May we spend time meditating on it and thinking through it and processing it and applying it to our lives. May we come daily to your word, Father, with a heart that is devoted to you and a will that is yielded to you. May we draw near to listen more than we draw near to speak. I pray, Father, that we heard your voice this morning and pray that we'd walk in obedience to that. Pray for your blessing upon all your people these, this day, Father, and for those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel, for comfort and encouragement for them and for boldness. Praise you and thank you for all that we have in Christ our Savior. And it's his name we pray. Amen.